0: Hi, everybody. Welcome again to another episode of the Shop Notes podcast. I'm your host, Phil, joined with Logan and special guest Mike Pekovic. Today, we're going to talk about design, the woodworker's journey, cooking, music, all that kind of stuff. Wanted to recognize today's episode is sponsored by Shaper Tools. They're the makers of the Shaper Origin. It's that handheld CNC that brings digital precision to the craft of woodworking. You can tackle joinery, cabinetry, hardware installation, and more with speed and precision. Try it risk-free in your shop for 30 days. Visit shapertools.com to learn more. Well, thanks, Mike, for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Yeah, well, we wanted to...
1: I had to use it once, right?
0: <laughs> uh, we wanted to return the favor since you guys sent Ben out here a couple of years ago, so we could
2: we could do that. And uh, but then you you sent him back to us, so I don't I don't know what yeah,
0: happened. Yeah, that right. That was the thing. Is like he it was more of an escape as sent back. Maybe I think that's probably probably a better descriptor of it. Uh, so what I wanted to talk to you about, Mike, is maybe a little bit of your backstory, origin story on how a, how a West Coast rocker turns into an East Coast furniture maker with a penchant for
2: quiet design. Huh. Okay, that, that, there's a lot to unpack there, I suppose. We can make it pretty quick. Um, <laughs> I started furniture making in, uh, in college, in art school. Um, at that same time, I had kind of um, kind of uh, picked up music and had been doing a band concurrently with making furniture. So I figured at some point, one of those things was eventually going to win out. And um, I thought, well, you know, this is back when 45 was considered ancient. So I said, like, as a 20-something, I said, I can be 45 and make furniture. I can't be 45 and still be an aspiring rock star like that was over the hill. So I just, uh, <laughs> um, after I graduated, I just basically pursued music kind of through my 20s. And then I realized um, that I needed to get a real job at some point. I went back to school for graphic design. And all the while, my, uh, Machines and stuff that I'd collected during furniture making in college were kind of living in my parents' garage and in storage and stuff. So I'd gotten back into woodworking uh, when I got back into graphic design and, and got a job as a graphic designer. Woodworking on the side, um, and that led uh, that led to a job at Fine Woodworking Magazine as uh, as I came in as an associate art director. In, the ad at the time that I saw in the magazine was, Associate Art Director must have woodworking and computer graphics experience. And this was 1996, so this was pre-internet. This was pre-web designer, pre-anything. So I basically figured I was the only person in the world with computer graphics and woodworking experience. And that turned out to be <laughs> the case because I got the job. So apparently that was I a uh, competition <laughs> one. Yeah, so, um, uh, and I've been at Fine Woodworking ever since, about 25 years. Um, and it was like, at the time, it was not a smart career move. It was not a strategic career move. So I was in Southern California uh, working for Vans, the escape shoe company as a graphic designer. And that was like a, a pretty hip and, and cool job. So you know, leaving there to go to Connecticut to work for Woodworking Magazine, had a lot of people scratching their heads, you know, I probably myself too at a certain point, but <laughs> I'd always had a passion for woodworking and furniture making, um, and uh, so I just, I didn't know how or why, but I just knew that coming to find Woodworking Magazine was somehow going to forward my woodworking pursuits, I guess. Um, I I didn't know how, but I basically took it as I came in uh, to the magazine and basically decided to relearn the craft of woodworking from the ground up. Because in college, I was taking woodworking within the art department, so it was very much design intensive. And the idea was that you were supposed to design something and then invent the joinery with which to hold all the parts together. So it was a very non-traditional Um, situation, and in California with the really constant temperature and humidity levels, wood movement was just a theory. It's just like, yeah, I know, but so when I came to Connecticut and I heard all these pops and cracks in the middle of the night when all of my California-made furniture started shrinking and pulling apart and once the heat came on in Connecticut, it's like, okay, this is a real thing. And So I basically said, Put the design aside because up to that point, um, I loved the design part. The building part was horrible. That was just like a chain around my ankle, keeping me from designing the next project. So it was like, sign it, great. Okay, now I got to make the thing. Okay, then I get to design something else. And so I really came at it um, uh, just basically saying, okay, put design aside. Why don't you sort of, kind of start from scratch and relearn how the woodwork in a traditional sense and uh so that started with a lot of articles you know by the authors that write for the magazine chris bexford and garrett hack um were basically my unofficial mentors in terms of uh, really learning the basics of uh, just how to build how to build correctly and then coming to connecticut falling in love with shaker furniture um you've seen pictures of it and some pictures in like Catalogs and that kind of stuff, but it was always out of context. It was always a piece of furniture, just sort of on its own. But then, when I had a chance to visit the Shaker village in uh, Hancock, Shaker village in Pittsfield, Massachusetts, where there's these beautiful buildings, beautiful landscapes, and then these rooms populated with this furniture and little stoves, and and you really got to see that the furniture was really part of a much bigger story. It was really I got to see that in context and, and understood it in lot better. In a way, it was like when I went to the Gamble House in Pasadena when I was studying furniture making in Southern California, you know, a, a fantastic house uh, designed by uh, Green and Green Brothers, and you got to see um, a house designed in a certain way with furniture designed for it, and you really got a sense that um, furniture didn't exist in a back view and that it can really contribute to the overall sense of space and sense of place that you're creating. And I think um as far removed as shape of furniture was from green and green furniture, I saw that same continuity of um place and um and furniture and architecture, how they all sort of inform each other. Um so um and I had already had Uh, some uh, knowledge of and a passion for arts and crafts furniture. So really, it was kind of like shaking arts and crafts furniture really what was really driving me for a while and sustained me for many years. And then even as I sort of started to quote unquote uh, design furniture again, it was very much uh, from those roots. Sure.
0: Now, as you develop your style, were there pieces where you could identify like this was a, this one was a a growth area, kind of the, you know, the mutant form that it like developed some characteristics that you knew that you were going to start to incorporate later on?
2: Definitely. Yeah. Um, When I sort of, um, actually, I think we were doing an article on, digital photography. And I did a sidebar on what you can do with your digital photographs once you took them on um, like what you can put a portfolio together or make a website. So I had sort of accumulated all the things I've been making. I've been doing commission work pretty much nonstop uh, since coming out to Connecticut. And when I looked at all of my work together, it was a real mishmash. There's like shaker stuff. There's arts and crafts stuff. There's sort of contemporary shaker stuff. There's sort of almost federal. It's basically whatever the client wanted, whatever page of the Pottery Barn catalog they had happened to turn to, <laughs> and that's what I was making. You know, so there was. Um, it, it wasn't that I, I wasn't proud of what I was making, but I looked at it and said, "There's no there, there. There's nothing there that really I can put my finger on if someone was saying." what kind of furniture do you make i didn't know what that was and i didn't know what to do with that per se um a, a really formative piece is that uh, we were doing an article on hanging up cabinets and we needed an example of a cabinet hung up on a french cleat so we're always looking for excuses to get out and shop and make something so i volunteered to make something super quick a little wall cabinet with a, a couple drawers and some shelves and some dovetails to hold everything together, and um, really made it without thought. It was really about having a French fleet and not worrying about how it necessarily looked. And sort of when it was done, um, <clears throat> and I kind of stepped back and looked at it, and it was like, ah, there it is. That's, that's, that kind of describes what I'm up to. So it was this notion of hmm. um, trying to get to a point where I'm not consciously designing in, in any specific style and so what it really left was not an in, in empty canvas, but really I think what it left with was sort of um, all the residue of influence from the pieces I built in the past certainly informed how I approached furniture, what I specifically I was after. But I think just the fact of not consciously designing in a certain style it kind of created this kind of neutral space um, to move forward with and for me it was the idea of limiting variables so this case had dovetails at the corners that kind of stuck out a little bit it had wherever the elements met the shelf to the side the side to the top and bottom there's a slight offset okay there's a drawer a couple dovetail drawers and some shelves and it's just like all right, those are your variables, that's what you get to work with. Um, sure. And by the way, if you wanna add a door, you can add a door. So it was just like that's it, kind of those are the uh, the ones and zeros of, of my design. The idea that refrain from consciously going in a certain direction and limiting to a certain uh, really strict um, minimum of variables, and, and then realizing even within that there's still a world of things that you can make without having to move too far away from that. Uh, so that that cabinet really pointed me in the right direction. Uh, and then also, um, I had made a little, um, we had a, a little cabinet with our TV on top and a VCR, and they both wouldn't fit. So I went to Home Depot, got a one by 12, cut it up and made just sort of a U shaped uh, stand with just Big crude dovetails on the sides. I didn't finish it. I didn't even glue it together. I just stuck it on there with the VCR underneath and the TV on top. And um, that piece, actually, it's still in our house and it's still getting used. It, it's sort of more from being a TV stand to a step stool in the bathroom to a little perch for laundry baskets <laughs> in the basement. Basement next to the washer dryer. To now it's a, a perch again for a TV with an Xbox down below it. So sure. it was this notion of. How is this thing that I that I just threw together? How is this still in use? How does this still have a useful life and things that I had really poured my ego into in college in these pieces, and they're like relegated to a dusty corner of the basement because I can't dare to cut them up or give them away. So it's this notion of um, not building just with the sense of um something that lasts a long time, which we're all I think we're we're tied into that. Um, but this notion how do I build something that has a long, useful life to it? Um, and I didn't quite uh again it's like, okay, think of it, that's cool, putting lights I didn't know what to do with it. But what it really began to speak to uh was this notion of uh if something is gonna have a long life, then the newness of it, that, that moment when it's brand new, can't be the ideal because if I make a piece with dovetails and I plane them perfectly flat and flush, after the first heating season, they're going to stick out a little bit and it's going to be imperfect. So basically, I made something that lasts 200 years. It was new for six months and it's old for 99, 199, 199 years I didn't, that bothered me a lot. So, um, looking at arts and crafts furniture, looking at older pieces of furniture, they still felt really fresh and new, where an old federal piece with the yellow banding and the buckled veneers just looked like an old brown piece of furniture, where the arts and crafts piece was still kind of holding its own. And I think that a lot of the reason why is that The typical stickly piece will have uh, joinery, which is proud. It does have the offsets between the components. So basically its essence is sort of built into the core, into the skeleton of the piece, into the structure, so that even if the finish gets dinged up, the essence of the piece is there. It's this notion of, okay, so if the dovetails are eventually going to stick out, make them stick out. If the parts are eventually going to be misaligned, intentionally making this misaligned to begin with. So it's this notion of not fighting what time and where it does to a piece of furniture, but embracing that, anticipating that, and in essence, building with this notion that I'm building imperfections in. Like, hey, if time is gonna do this, I'm gonna beat it to the punch, I'm gonna make these things uneven to begin with. And in that way, the, the, natu- the character of the piece is consistent from the time it's made to five years to 10 years to, Fifty years later, all those parts are still going to be offset in the way that they were to be when it was built. So I think um, more than anything else, um, that philosophy um, that newness is not an ideal; it's just sort of a blip on the timeline um, sure. is a, a really important thing that that um, drives a lot of my work. So I'd say it's not specific design details I'm hoping to incorporate. I think it's just being consistent with a, a core set of philosophies, which drives basically how my furniture ends up looking.
0: Cool. Well, I think what's kind of fun having, I mean, full disclosure, I'm pretty sure that all of us in the woodworking publication realm secretly or not so secretly spy on each other. Uh, <laughs> is the idea, you know, since I've been following you, is to see how your uh, inspiration changes, you know, where I see you coming up with projects uh, kind of on a need basis, but I also see, uh, you know, and in woodworking, especially with our magazines, you know, we're presenting projects as kind of a still life of a given project, and we try to be exact with dimensions and numbers and and all that sort of thing, but when we're building projects for our for ourselves, and I Logan and I see this because we're in the shop together all the time. But being able to, kind of, like I said, spy on you is to see like you finding inspiration in like flea market finds and you know leftover props from classes and all that kind of stuff. Do you do you struggle with that sometimes in wanting to be real rigid in you know having a plan before you get into the shop versus getting into the shop? And improvising a little bit, so to speak.
2: Yeah, that's a huge question, and I think if you if you make furniture, you know, there's probably not a single right answer to that. Right, right. Um, so, at the magazine, um, so our magazine is, is basically reader written. So, the idea is that we're going to get someone from the outside to build a piece of furniture for us. We'll document it, and if we come up with the correct dimensions, but the idea is that. Um, ideally, um, <clears throat> the stories coming into the magazine are coming in from the son. So then, I found my place was um, to um, kind of fill in any gaps, like um, you know we just haven't had anybody do a straight up Shaker Shaker style chest of drawers. In a long time. Or I've looked at dozens of Chris bexford articles, who's a master of shaper furniture in that style, and also just a master of really fundamental building techniques. And in reading a dozen of his articles, there were a ton of fantastic techniques that were sort of spread out and really difficult for anybody to find. So I think the first project article I did was a shaper chest of drawers and cherry so design wise i wanted to be real meat and potatoes not you know macaroni and cheese with jalapenos and cream cheese in it but just no straight up mac and cheese or straight up meatloaf like straight up shaker chester drawer so it was definitely you know not my own design sensibility my own ego i just wanted to build something that if someone was looking for something to build they would look at that and say oh yeah that's that's what i want to make and then within that try to basically catalog um, really, really smart, useful ways to go about building, which I think would hopefully benefit the reader. So that was kind of in the beginning, you know, that was my take. So I would do shaker, chester drawers, um, uh, you know, arts and crafts uh, pieces here and there. Um, and then I sort of like to get a little bit subversive about it um, where i had done a chimney cupboard. I love the chimney covered form which was two doors stacked on top of each other. And I love the bigger case pieces that often had a waste of doors and sort of an asymmetric style. I loved that. That killed me. Um, so when I made a chimney cupboard, I said, well, this is maybe not historically accurate, but I'm going to make a chimney cupboard with a waste of doors in there too, just because they were super, super cool. So the idea wasn't, um, it wasn't to make something that didn't look shapely or correct, but it was, Sort of to instill kind of my own passion and sensibility, things that I was super excited about in the piece, and that was probably the transition to. I so a lot of the pieces I make specifically for the magazine, um, I wanted to be, in a style, that a lot of people. Um, would like to build, and uh, all of the processes need to be super, super sound. And, and because anything we show in the magazine, I'm sure you are the same way. If I'm showing any technique, I am by default recommending this technique to yeah. you. Yeah. Um, and, and the fact that we have outside authors that really, we give you tons and tons of techniques, and we like different model techniques, as long as they're serving the reader. So. Um, So that aspect of of building in a very sound manner and having them build something that they would actually like to build uh, has been super important. Um, And what I started doing was um, I stopped doing commission work, sort of involuntarily, just about 2008. I'm not sure what happened around 2008, but people stopped ordering (laughs) furniture. That they could no longer afford it because they didn't have jobs anymore. Um, so I started, um, just, I, that coincided with, uh, finally revamping my garage shop into a true four season shop with good light, uh, a real floor, good heat in the wintertime. And, um, I really, when I started working my own shop, um, it made me realize that When I was a fine woodworking, working in the fine woodworking shop, how much I was working under the mantle of what a proper fine woodworking piece should be. And when I got into my shop, I started to work on more personal things with the idea being that, hey, no one can see me working here. I'm going to make what I want to make. I don't care if it's an editor. I don't care if he likes it. I'm just making it for myself and I'm going to keep it secret because I kind of don't even want to show people. And then of course, <laughs> when I show people it's like, oh, why don't you do an article on that? So I think that's um, where my more sort of, um, I don't know if it's a personal style or lack of style, started to then invest itself into pieces of medicine. And So this is like a really answer, and you can. You can cut answers down, that right? You just like delete. Oh, yeah. You know yeah. What I'm saying? Yeah, totally. Actually <laughs> answering the question. So your, your question, um, you know, about influences and, um, and, you know, whether I'm going into the shop, um, knowing exactly what I'm going to be making. I would say that, that I always have an idea. Uh, and I think it's, it's in fact, I, I think it's tremendously important to have an idea of where you're going. That doesn't necessarily mean, you know, complete full-size plans with every joint figured out. It just means right. you know where the, where the end point is, what you're what you're shooting for. And a lot of the pieces I make in my shop, I'm going in with that idea and working towards that idea. Um, and I'm super free and super loose and it's super quick and really intuitive and I say I'm not shooting anything. You know, I'm not building this for anything. I'm just making it for myself. I don't even know what these dimensions are. And so those things sort of become, I kind of refer to them as studies. They're not prototypes. They're a real thing. But right. it's a way to be really fluid and really creative to, you know, hold up four pieces and say, is this tall enough? Is it wide enough? Is it too deep? And it says, no, it's an inch too high. And then rather than sweat it out, cut an inch off and, and like keep going. Like there's no, There's um, there's no downside to it. It's not a commission piece. Um, Because when I was doing commission work, you know, you get really nervous and you wanna be super accurate and super correct and you wanna give people something really, really nice. And then you're always working with their voices in your head. And I tended to be super pretty conservative with what I was making. And it wasn't that the final product was incorrect, but it was like a little stiff because Sure. I certainly wasn't going to be experimenting with things. I wanted to get to something that I knew was was correct. And what I find is if I spend time in the shop, give myself time to do all these little unimportant pieces that I can just goof around with, what I find is that I'm I'm much more likely to sort of capture the spark of what I was going for. Um, It may not be 100% correct, but... In making something like that, then it's much easier to go to a commission piece for a piece I'm teaching with your magazine and then just tighten it up. Then just kind of fix it up or really decide how you're going to go about making it. The idea being is that that initial spark um, that kind of drove you to make the first piece, hopefully it's still present in that more correct version that you made. like I can't start with a commission idea and then take the risks necessary to make the intuitive leaps to get to something which is moving me forward, but I do find if I spend time on projects um, with no risk to them and take a lot of chances and try a lot of things, that then informs the more correct pieces and I think that's what like a me. So um, for me, my bliss is getting in the shop by myself with my camera in the bag and my tripod leaned up in the corner, and just making something—that's you yeah. know—that's that's my idea. And I get so, stressed out and think, "Wow, yeah, maybe I do, maybe maybe I'm done woodworking. Maybe I've lost it. The spark is gone. Out. Okay." And then, like one Saturday morning in your shop, it's like, "Boom! Nope, there it is. I was just doing everything <laughs> except what I wanted to do."
1: So when you're in your shop, Mike, without your camera running, what are you building? What What do you want to build? Like if there's one, if you had to say there's one um, thing you want to build, what does Mike Pekovic build?
2: Um, you know, unless I need something really specific, I think the form I love right now Um is uh it is basically like a kind of the the case on stand one. Okay. Yep. Um there's just so much you can do within that, Mm -hmm. uh creatively design wise, um, that I still I don't think I would ever hit the limit. And it's also it's a lot of woodworking in a fairly small package, which is good too, so you're not wasting lumber and you know, if I don't have to lift huge eight quarter live-edge boards around my shop, I'm, I'm okay with that. Yeah. <laughs> um, so th- again, it's that idea. Is, um, so the case is the verticals, the horizontal, and it's always gonna have some combination of doors, drawers, shelves, okay. sliding doors maybe. Um, a lot of those elements that from a um, design standpoint is super, super challenging and fun. Um, and again, by the time you're done, you just have so much packed into such a small area that to me it's almost, um, I guess it's almost jewel-like, where sure. you're not trying to rein in a lot of good stuff. You have this sort of a small palette to work with and mm-hmm. do a lot of fun. And then, of course, a stand can manifest itself in a hundred million different ways. I mean, yeah. I, I like that. So, I mean, is that... Was that a conscious following in the footsteps of James Crowell, who was like the master of the cabin on stand? Um, I mean, probably yes and no. I mean, I was enamored with James Crowell in his writings when I was in college, although it probably took me 30 years before I actually made a traditional case on stand. um, But, um, yeah, I mean, I'm certainly not. I'm not, again, I'm not working in the style. I'm not doing anything where I want someone to say, well, that's very much in the the vein of James Brown. Um,
0: But like you said, there's all kinds of different permutations on it. Yeah. You know, and I I think they end up being friendly pieces, too, that, you know, they're not hulking or oppressive,
2: like a big case piece can feel. Very much. Yeah. I think I think the proportions sort of fit the human scale really well. Yeah, I think for anything I'm making for myself, I would like to be pushing myself forward either with a new detail that I had not incorporated into a piece yet or a new technique. Um, that is the problem of sort of staying within a very kind of rigidly limited design forms that It's a lot of permutations of the same elements, but it's not necessarily moving forward. So, a more recent case on stand, I was using, you know, pieces with octagonal cross sections, and I was, I got into doing some steam bending, and so some really fun techniques, um, which really helped. And, And the thing about doing my own stuff, too, is like, I, you know, you, you make a fun techniques, um, which will help. And, and the thing about doing my own stuff, too, is like, I you know, you, you make a, a, a real piece and say, I wonder how it would look if I had both panels on the side of this. And it's just like, yeah, but I'm not going to pull the trigger on this, um, but uh, those pieces I am making myself, again, I'll throw a lot of things on it, because I don't know how detail is going to work in a real piece until you actually do it and see it and I can respond to it. And then once I know what effect this element has on a piece, and now that's in my brain as part of the library, Mm -hmm. now when I'm building a piece and I'm I'm sort of looking towards a direction, I can say, okay, does this element take me closer to that point or does it move me further away? Um, not having tried it, I'm just sort of guessing, like maybe that would kind of help with that. So, you know, it's, it's a lot of um, giving yourself kind of the, the safe space to try a lot of things that may or may not work. And I think it's cooking for yourself versus cooking for the crowd. No. Yeah, you know, you try a lot of wacky things, cooking for yourself with the idea that you're gonna give your relatives at least something good to eat. It won't kill them, yeah.
1: So as you're working in your shop, Mike, would you consider yourself more of a hand tool user, more of a power tool user, or I hate to use a click word as a hybrid user, but let's use a click word, hybrid woodworker?
2: Yeah, that's that's stupid. I knew I do too. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I think that... <laughs> Um, you know, it, it's like you can't do anything with wood with your bare hands. There's always a tool between you and yeah. the workpiece, right? So no matter whether the tool has a quote on it or not, it's still a tool, you know? I mean, and for me, it goes all the way back to when I was in, um, in college, it was all about the design, it was always about realizing a finished project and I don't care how I got there. I just wanted to get there, and like um, like a lot of people, I was um, trained on basic machinery uh, techniques and also enough hand skills to know how to cut a dovetail um, or chamfer a, the edge of a board or something like that. Um, <clears throat> but when I when I came to find woodworking after I've been woodworking for quite a while, when um, I actually uh, David Welcher at College of the Redwoods. Um, we were shooting an article on on James Krenov making a hand plane. And David Walter worked there, and we were goofing around, and, and he gave me his hand plane, and I took a shaving with it. And it was like magic. And I just thought, this is a magic hand plane. This thing is like, and what it was, it was a sharp blade <laughs> and a hand plane. And it's one of those things where, you know, it's like, oh, that—that's what this tool is. This is this what it. This is what it can do, and that sort of definitely allow me to introduce more and more handily, um into my work. But now it's always, I think in terms of efficiency, and efficiency doesn't mean as fast as you can. Efficiency means the fastest way to get to the end point that you want. Um, and quite frankly, you know, you can make absolutely anything start to finish with hand tools because it's been done people do that um however i'm a firm believer that you cannot make absolutely anything with only power tools i think that um, power tools are awesome because i don't want to be playing all day to thickness a board or dimension it but um, hand tools are 100 percent essential to get you beyond a certain point in order to get to a level of precision, finesse, a level of finish. Um, If that's where you want to go, hand tools are a necessary part of that. You know, and it's just like everybody that that I was inspired by, all of the people that sort of the 50s, 60s studio furniture movement, James Prenner, Sam Luke, George Nakashima, um, Tate Frid, all the way through Perspectford, Garrett Hack, and everyone I've been inspired by since working with the magazine. Everybody's machines and hand tools. It just is, and it's no big deal. And it always has been that way. And so it's never been a thing. And so to, to belatedly at this point in time put a name on it or, or make it any more important than it is, is kind of, um, uh, it, it's beside the point for me, but, you know, I would say 15 years ago, maybe 20 years ago, people would apologize for using a hand plane and explain why right. they're using it. Like, they're sort of sheepish yep. about using a And then the, the pendulum switched to where it's like, people are really sheepish about using a planer or, or a joint. Well, you know, it just, it, it just helps me get to the workbench faster. It's like you know, it's like, don't apologize for anything. Like, it, it's all good. And um, if you want to start with hand tools and it breaks down a barrier and gets you going quicker and for less money, that's awesome. You know, you want to woodwork and don't want to spend a lot of money, buy a little hook knife and a stool and start making spoons because that's just as awesome as anything. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's uh, uh So, yeah, I, I'm firmly in the camp of... Um, being a hybrid woodworker but you know as I, I mentioned in my book um where it's sort of like where does the woodworking begin for you like where's where's the fun begin like i sort of equate it to going on a hike and where's the trail right going? and you know i mentioned that that for me i like going on a hike but i like driving through the trail. you know which means the, the heavy, you know, machining, joining, cleaning, table saw, cross cutting, getting to four square boards. And then that's sort of the beginning of it for me and other people. It's like, no, I'm in my shop to make shavings because my job is super stressful and being in the shop is that one escape for me. And so I'm not going to waste it by using machines when I could be doing things like that. So, and I understand that a 100%. So, you know, it depends on, on where you're at. You know, what are your intentions? Why are you there? Because very few of us are in the shop um, making a full-time living at it. So there's other reasons why you're there. And I think that's really important to sort of identify within yourself, why am I here? What am I getting out of it? And then make sure that all of your methods um, and the way you go about working and what you're making is consistent with why you're there. And I think that's how you're going to get the most out of it. Uh, this craft, which is, is so wonderful, and there's no right answer to sure.
0: anything. them. Today's episode is sponsored by Shaper Tools. They're the makers of the Shaper Origin. It's that handheld CNC that brings digital precision to the craft of woodworking. You can tackle joinery, cabinetry, hardware installation, and more with speed and precision. Try it risk-free in your shop for 30 days. Visit shapertools.com to learn more. So let's talk a little bit about your books. How did you, how did you go, like, where did the seed of these books come from?
2: So the first book I I wrote was um, titled The Lion How of Woodworking. And I think it it came about, um, I had started posting pictures on Instagram. Just because some of my buddies at work were doing it, and I think you know Matt Kenny was a a good friend of mine, woodworking, he was there. You know, he said, "I'm on Instagram and I have like 1,200 followers, and like that was like that's insane. It's like I I don't want that, but it would be a cool way to let people know what I'm teaching." So, um, you know, so I I posted some pictures of some finished pieces of furniture and get started, and then you quickly realize that if I show everything I've ever made, I'm going to run out of like posts in a month if I'm trying to do this every day. So, um, I did one of two things. And then, so when I was making, I started taking pictures while I was building. And and, at Fine Woodworking, uh, as a creative director and former art director, my job was to instruct people how to shoot in the appropriate style for publication of fine woodwork. So it was pretty straight up, It's pretty correct. And get, getting in my shot, it allowed me to photograph in a much more personal way, a much more evocative way, um, heavier lights and shadows, kind of less correct that wouldn't be appropriate for magazines. So I really found a more personal approach to photography, which um, for me, I, I, I'm not a photographer per se, I'm like, the photographer of all things woodworking, you know, because it's just sort of, that's my passion and, and through my photography I want to try to convey the passion of one, to put you in that moment to say, oh, I'd like to be in that space, I would like to be doing that, oh, I would like to be making something like that. So. I mean, that's what we tried to do with the magazine, is like we need to give people a reason to be in the shop. So this was just sort of that taking a step further. So I began to photograph as I was filming, you know, more personal style. And then when I was making the post, and I didn't really have a new picture, I would just like post an old picture, but then write a couple paragraphs on some, semi or completely unrelated topic and it was just this kind of wake up in the morning in bed pull out my ipad and like poop out two or three paragraphs and hit send and, and call it good and that was really again i'd written for the magazine and writing it was such a chore it's such a, a difficult thing to do and you have to write in a certain style and make sure you have periods where they need to be and commas where they need to be and actually being able to just write out something really quick and close, this sort of allowed me to tap into a more, uh, a more personal style, a, a way that directly connected more to uh, thoughts I had about woodworking, things that were really important for me in terms of being involved with the class. So I would say that basically the book was born out of both that experience of being able to talk more intimately about what I was doing. Um, having photographs in a style which was more personal and spoke to my passions for the craft and then just after you know 25 years of being at the magazine having an understanding of what people were going to the shop for and understanding the problems and the struggles they're having once they're there and really wanting to help them along that journey like i know why you're here Um, and I know why it sucks most of the time. Okay, here's how maybe we can, you know, make your time in the shop a little bit more productive, less stressful, and more (laughs) enjoyable. So um, that was kind of the first book. Uh, And the other thing I really wanted to talk about was that when we talk about design, or when we're building furniture, we're talking about making something real. So it's like someone comes to your house and they look at something and they say, oh wow, that looks like you could buy it in store. Right? You know, you might be like, oh, crazy, but then what they're saying is, oh, it's real. Hey, yeah, I made something real. And I think we we have this notion of it's so hard to build. It takes so much work and, and effort and time that we want to make sure we come away with something that looks real. But I think a lot of us starting out, myself for a while, you know, we we didn't really come close to thinking in terms of investing our own creativity with personality in, in what we're building. And what I wanted to, and when we talk about designing furniture, we're thinking about weird, wild, family, flatter, or really amazing Michael Fortune studio furniture with all these curves and those you know flat surfaces, which is super cool. But I wanted to um, talk about the notion of design really um, from the standpoint of just investing a little bit of who you are uh into the work that you've been making like like that's it just you know yeah you read a book and like you're not supposed to you know combine 17 different tropical hardwoods into one project but you know what if you really want to do it um go for it that's that's what you should be doing and don't worry about it and don't worry about what anybody says so you know the book was, was hopefully to get people to identify why they're in their shop and work more consistently towards that and also hopefully empower them to think in terms of making work choose, which is the more personal reflection of who they are. Because we all can't make you know a lot of grandiose stuff, but we all are fully capable of making things that resonate with the with the people that we are. And it's it's a handcrafted Thing Like, we make it from scratch, so we don't need to be putting up these, you know, pedestals of it, it has to look like this in order to be good, it's like, you're making it, it's already good, Um, just, you know, just make it the way you want to make it. So um, that was that, and in order to write that book, I basically had to leave out about 95% of actually telling you how to make furniture, and I felt kind of bad about that. so I knew like with the second book and I kind of sold it uh, to my publisher, you know, because they they were very, they had, they were um, very patient with me and they gave me a lot of latitude, which was nice, but they really didn't have an idea of what I wanted this book to be. But they knew I was really passionate about it, and I think it was easier for them to say, yeah, just go ahead and make it, Mike, and, and move through But I promised them, I said, I said, the first book, I said, I don't care if only one person buys it as long as they like it. My publisher's like, no, 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 we need to sell this to more than one person. I said, well, okay. Um, the first book is is hopefully a book where uh, <laughs> it's a book you discover by someone handing it to you, like, oh, you're interested in woodworking, read this. You know. um, the second book, I wanted to sort of uh, fulfill the promise of, of teaching you how to do stuff. So it's, it's really much more nuts and bolts. Um, it starts off with basic joining of rabbits and grooves. It moves on to mitres and tenors, dovetails, and mitres. But I didn't want a book just about how to cut this joint, how to cut this joint, how to cut this joint, and it leaves everything in the vacuum. Um, what I wanted to do is try to connect the dots for you that the basic joinery, those are your building blocks. You need to know how to do, perform these, these very basic things which are easy to do, but you also need to know how to combine them into building what you want to make. So it's like, okay, how do I put all of these to use to make a piece of furniture in a sound in, in a smart way? And then the third thing was, okay, now that I've this final plan, I know exactly where it is, where do I start? And that's a super, I find that it's a higher level thing that a lot of people don't think about, they don't have the bandwidth to think about, they're really struggling to cut a dovetail, but it's super important. I mean, some very, very simple concepts like, mark your parts so they don't get mixed up. Understand that, um, you know, what the critical dimensions are and what the critical dimensions aren't, and don't worry about that stuff, but Having that path from start to finish, once you know how to build, is a huge part of whether you're having fun in the shop, whether you're doing good work, um, and you're you're happy with what you're making. So it's it's sort of ambitious, but it was the sort of the basic building blocks, how to assemble into a skeleton and framework, and then how do you plot a course from beginning to end, which um, doesn't leave you working yourself into a corner, or staring at your bench top for half an hour to decide what to do next, only to, after having done that, realize ooh, I should have done that first. Yeah. So that, that's quick number two.
0: Yeah, which I thought was interesting because I feel like, like you said, a lot of joinery books end up kind of leaving you hanging. It's a, a choose-your-own-adventure novel with no story really to it, and you don't know where to go with it, and there's no context and it's like I don't even know what like I want to do a miter, but there's eight ways to do this. What am I going to do? Yeah,
2: exactly. Yeah, I think that's that is the toughest thing is to write any woodworking book. It's not it's, the idea isn't isn't figuring out what you want to say, but it's figuring out all the things you need to not say or leave out in order to get to the really important parts. You know, um, and I think that's a, a, a lesson I've learned over and over and over again at, at uh, fine woodworking because it's like okay here's how to build a um, cherry high boy in eight pages oh okay well we're not milling lumber <laughs> you're not talking about a dovetail drawer right um, then again it's like okay now we have a two-page article on how to cut a dovetail Okay, now we can go super deep and tell you all this. So, um, I think any any book that begins, you know, sort of in earnest by saying, I mean, start from the the beginning and tell you everything you need to know about woodworking. And, like, you won't even get to step two before you're like 300 pages in from the book. So, I think it's the ability to. You know what you're after. Make sure you talk about that, and hopefully, offer the illusion that you didn't skip too much to get there. But um, understanding that there is a whole lot more yeah. that you can go into.
0: Because yeah. I, what I really liked is, and I, uh, I actually got both of your books as Christmas gifts when they came out. Um, the how and the why and how woodworking, I thought was came across to me as like a like 50. James krenoff's books and like fifty percent Aldo Leopold Sand County Almanac, oh, and it's just a an appreciation for the time time and tools spent in your shop, and it was just it was really fun for me to be able to read that. Thank so, that. And, and and you're right, the second one felt like an extended like this is the appendix to that book that uh, these are the how tos and and that one felt more like a like the very best cookbook on a specific say regional cuisine where these are the elements of that cuisine and now it's up to you to mix and match those. And in the end, it's going to be an Italian dish or a Mexican dish or, you know, American Southern cooking. So long as you can put these, you can master these components.
2: Um, Yeah. Thank you. I mean, that's, that's, a good way to describe it in that the first book for me vocally inspired you to want to get out to the shop and in the second book my my vision was with this book walking into the shop you know having okay with this book I can go into the shop and make whatever I want I didn't want it to be with this book I can go into the shop and make furniture that looks like my package that, that wasn't the point at all and the first book because it was about uh you know, trying to explain how to get to a very personal design style, it out of necessity had to feature the work that I had been designing to be able to talk about it. And so the second book is, sure. is much more open. So that's why you see an arts and crafts uh, display case in this, why you see a chimney covers, why you see an kind of um, The idea being that this isn't. About building in a specific style, it's just about building and the ideas that all of these things apply to whatever you're making there. So, yeah, yeah that's that's the idea.
0: Of it. Yeah. Now I have a specific question f- regarding Logan because he's got a he's going to be building a shop here pretty soon, and you've been living in your shop for quite a while. The walls of your shop. Are they straight-up drywall? Do you have plywood behind there?
2: Um, The walls of my shop, it's a cinder block building. And because, you know, there was just zero insulation, I actually framed out basically an interior wall, the studs on the inside, uh, filled that in with rigid insulation in between the studs and the drywall on top of that. Uh, so it's really, it was a really small shop to begin with. It was about okay. 19 by 19 for the interior space. And I lost, you know, probably another foot and it's probably about 18 by 18, but that was worth it. And then I have, um, because I live in Connecticut, I hired someone to come in and do the spray, the expanding foam insulation yep. under on the bottom of the roof between the rafters. So. Um, and that worked out really well. I mean, for me, it was just like, can I get to the point where <clears throat> it's tied enough to where I can afford to heat it? Because when I came to Connecticut, and it's just like, in California, everybody's wood shop is in their garage. So it's just like, yeah. why is everybody shopping in a basement? That sounds horrible. <laughs> and then I set up in my garage, and here came November and so It's right. like, ah, all right. So I got a heater, and I blew through like a 100 gallons mm-hmm. plate of cocaine in a yeah. and it never got above like 45 degrees. So it's like, okay, i yeah. second. So for me, it's it's getting a a, a super tight space that I can keep adequately. um, It's a super small space, but I did raise the ceiling from about seven feet and change to over nine feet. And that was, that's a huge thing. I think I would would probably rather forego a smaller footprint as long as I had a taller ceiling. That was a wonderful thing. So, Logan, what kind of shop, what kind of space do you have that you're going to be building out? Uh,
1: I So, when I built my house a couple of years ago, I finished my entire basement, but I left a about a 14 by 24 foot unfinished that I finished as my shop. So, uh, Phil and I were talking before we started the podcast. Oh, cool. I have, okay. right now, I have, I put, when I frame my shop, I did like 7 sixteenths OSB underneath the drywall. So I can hang stuff wherever I want, uh, but I drywalled it. Awesome, yeah. I drywalled it because when I my ultimate plan was to build a shop, you know, outside of the house. Uh, my plan was to turn what is currently my shop space into a theater room, uh, and now my kids are that age that they're they're wanting to the, like, hey, when can we get a movie room and. I'm asking my wife, "Hey, when can I build a shop?" <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, I'm. Uh, we're gonna be putting up a. Uh, up here in the Midwest, Morton buildings or machine sheds are very popular. Pole barns, um, so it will be a large building, okay. a forty by eighty-eight building, but about half of it will be shop. So it'll be about a sixteen hundred square foot shop. So I was telling okay. Phil, I was fellas, like, do do I just drywall okay. the whole thing? Do I plywood it and paint it? Do I what do I do? Because that's a lot of it's a lot of interior space to put stuff on.
2: Yeah, so. are you still thinking about that right now, or you have it figured out?
1: No, I think I'm, I. We'll see what we'll see what sheet good prices are like. That's what it will all boil down to. Right. To be honest with you, um, well. I was t- I was telling Phil somebody somebody on Facebook had a bunch of like OSB or uh, MDF. It was actually MDF for cheap, and I was like, I could MDF behind it. And then drywall over top of it. <laughs> but that just sounds miserable. And I don't hang I don't hang sheet yeah. goods in a building. I I hire that out. I hate doing that. So yeah. Um yeah. so no, I'm I'm probably still planning on I I just I like the ability to be able to hang stuff wherever I want it and not worry about hitting studs. Especially in a like right. pole pole barn building where you have uh eight foot on center, six by six beams. Or poles, and then you have horizontal girts. You don't have horizontal, or you have you have horizontal girts. You don't have vertical studs, which makes. Okay. I would have to wrap my head around trying to hang stuff on that, anyways. Like, oh hey, it doesn't run this way; it runs this way. <laughs> so. Yes. You know, one of those things.
2: Huh? Well, what kind of stuff? I mean, that's going to be a pretty big shop. What kind of woodworking do you envision yourself doing? It?
1: So my my goal is to move a lot of uh, the current popular woodworking photography and video out there. So, you
2: know, oh, as okay. you know,
1: once you start adding lights and adding cameras, that eats up a lot of space. Um, yeah, I'm a yeah. I'm very much a modern shaker fanboy. That's that's what I love building. Um, and I love I'm a avid turner, so there will be a large corner of the shop just for turning. Um, cool, but. Yeah, it's more to have that space for cameras, for lights, have an office, have a yeah. bathroom in there, stuff like that.
2: Nice. Yeah, so you you yeah. know what your sight lines need to be. You know, here's the table saw. This is where I want to shoot from. This is what I want the back. Exactly. Yeah.
1: Exactly.
2: Yeah. Yeah, it's it's like stuff that
1: I never thought when is, I was building a shop I'd need to consider.
2: Yes. Yeah, it's like, um, like – where you where the camera is facing, you know, with my workbench and window and my tool cabinet, that's the only part of the shop which is like photogenic. The rest is like a disaster. <laughs> so you gotta be strategic.
1: Yeah, well, it's funny because you know we always talk about. Uh, it, I think every woodworking publication has said it at one point: put your bench against the window so you get good light coming through. And I'm thinking all right, that means I have one wall I can put my bench against, because otherwise I'm looking at my house or I'm looking at my neighbor's house. The other window at least is the timber, <laughs> yeah. you know what I mean? So it's like I have one good right. backdrop and that's where the bench has to go. So,
2: yeah. Right, and then if your your bench is facing the window, you can't be shooting exactly. at your back or past you all the time. So I've got my uh, cable saw outfit table outfitted as a second bench. So I'm actually yep. working there for the most part. And you see my real bench in the background, and it looks wonderful. But um, if you pay attention, you realize that I'm spending 90% of the time working on not my workbench, but Yes. Tricks of the trade. But yeah.
1: <laughs> well, it's, it's funny, so, you know, it's... It's... Oh, Go ahead.
2: Oh, I was going to say, you had mentioned the term modern shaker. Yeah. Explain that to me. That sounds pretty cool. I think I know what you're talking about. Um,
1: so basically what I do is if my wife asks me for to build something, I hand her a Thomas Mosher catalog and say, pick something.
2: Okay. Very good. Very <laughs> yeah. Very wise. Yes. The yeah. illusion uh, of choice. Yes. Like exactly.
1: That. Yes. Because her and I have very different styles. I love traditional forms. She's very. She likes modern stuff you know if i could okay. if i could make everything out of poplar and paint it she would be so happy but i refuse to do it <laughs> so. so some stuff sure some stuff great if that's if that's what i'm going for um but yeah i uh, i love i love the shaker forms i love everything about it so nice.
2: okay. yeah yeah i agree 100% and shaker's kind of funny because you know shaker furniture was they were sort of riffing off of federal furniture, but just stripping mm-hmm. it down to just like yep. nothing, just to the solid wood. And then a lot of the, the mid-century Danish uh, makers were looking at shaker furniture exactly. as an inspiration. So it's really funny how it's like modern furniture, kind of shaker furniture was sort of the, the first truly kind of post-modern style of furniture. And then it went to kind of Denmark and then back to us. And now mm-hmm. it's sort of back to shaker and modern shaker. Yeah. yeah i think it's but you it, it is important to please the client no matter who your client is <laughs> or whether they're paying or not it's, that's a really, really important
1: yeah for sure now it's funny it's something phil and i talk about a lot here and I'm, I'm interested to hear if you have the same thing is your woodworking on camera different than your woodworking for yourself like do you find it is just to us if we're building something in front of a camera for you know whether it's for photography whether it's for video it's a whole different sense to the project than if it's just you at your bench do you find that same thing
2: um you know here's the actually one of the, the biggest influences on the way i work i would say in the past i would really have to edit how I did things if it was going to be printed in the magazine versus how I might do it when nobody was looking. What I found is that um, when I started teaching a lot, and I've been teaching pretty consistently for the last 10 years, is that, you know, I would I would just, well, this is how I do it in my shop, and then I would, like, tell students how to do it, and everything would blow up and fall apart. And so it's like, oh, wait, let me refigure that, or I would do something in my shop and feel, eh, that's not really the safest way to do it. When I go to a class, I'm gonna do it this way instead. So that was yep. the way I work and then the way I taught. what it happened is like when you actually spend 10 minutes to figure out the safest way to do something, it turns out to be is probably the best way to do it too. So mm-hmm. a lot of those techniques that I developed specifically for teaching, um, I use myself in my own shop, which of course is there's a one-to-one correlation between the way I teach and the methods I would use as I'm uh, writing an article or a book. Um, so it, it's it's gotten to the point where there's less of a disconnect. So now, for the most part, if I'm whatever I'm doing on camera in video, is the way I would do it, minus five percent of the stuff. There's like. You know, sure. Yeah, that's, right. that's fair. That's fair. If you need a tenant, you're just yeah. going across the blade. We're, we're good. Um, nothing super <laughs> sketchy, but... Um, yeah. Yeah. Things like, you know, it's like there are things you do and things you... What you do and what you tell other people to do are often not the same, but I, I would say, and, and I think... Um, that's a good thing, I think I'm getting closer to the way I work. I think is for the most part, it's pretty. Yeah, this is how I, I would recommend. To be this mm-hmm. Sure, I, I, you can't
1: yeah, I it. feel, I feel as I'm working for photos and stuff, it's like I'm always rushing to get parts together. So if photographer's not standing around, and I'm paying a photographer not to, you know, to, to stand around while I'm working on something, and you know, it's just. Yeah. it feels like there's always a much calmer like I'm in my shop I don't have to worry about pleasing anybody and it's just different
2: yeah I think that's the thing is um, you know if if I have a staff photographer come out and shoot something like if we're doing a video and, mm-hmm. and Ben is coming out to shoot that and we've got three days I have mock up cards in like five yeah. different stages and it's just like okay, this is done. It's like, you know, you put the chicken in the oven and you put out the finished chicken. <laughs> it's, you know, it's, yep. it's that sort of thing. It's, <laughs> it's super plain. Yeah. Um, the good thing now is that I do, my wife does a lot of my photography. Actually, she does pretty much all of my um, print photography along with me. And so it's now I'm working in real time and it's just like, okay, stop, come out. Let's get these pictures or if I have yeah. to, I'll set up a camera with uh, a remote too to get a shot and so now I would say I photograph in a tremendously inefficient way because it's like get a shot, wait for two hours right. get another shot. Yep. And um but I, I really like that. In fact, you know, my <clears throat> uh, like my books, it's like you cannot you cannot go out and make that book by scheduling a photo shoot with an author. No. Because I mean, nope. the photos are, are span weeks or, or months and that's what I like, that's what I'm, I'm super um, proud of. It's this, it's this object, it's this finished product which is created in a way which is frankly impossible to create any other way. And that's kind of the cool thing. But yeah, I mean, I, I like photography, it, it, it's a burden, but I'm sure you feel the same way as the thing with photographing. It really forces you to really think about what you're doing it and why you're doing it that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: It also makes you realize how awkwardly you can hold stuff for a photo to make it look good. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, nope, rotate your hand a yes, little bit unnaturally so it way. looks better.
2: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's funny, like the authors we work with on a more regular basis, they just know the colors. They're just like boom boom. Like a like a, a carver, a professional carver who's really going at it, man, they're flicking that chip off the chisel all the time to see what they're doing. We just want to get the stop. Don't yeah. You know. Whereas other people they just know they just know how long to get the curl, get the hand up yeah. away from the blade hold still, take the shot and keep on going. Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately, we've <laughs> broke, broken a few authors so that they can no, no. It's, it's this notion of, and it's really hard, especially during a glue up. It's this notion of, yeah. excuse me, we're not making a piece of furniture here. We're making a magazine on it. Exactly. You know An article. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's but, funny. You know, that of course doesn't fly if, if you're there and this yeah. person. Yes. But yeah.
1: That's funny. So, Mike, what is your if you were gonna pick one wood species to bring with you on the desert island that you're making furniture with for the rest of your career? What wood species is it? And I'm doing this to you because I think Ben did this exact same same thing to us. So,
2: payback. <laughs> oh. Yeah, no. Um, I won't say what I said to Ben when he asked me that on the podcast. I think I said that's a stupid question. And, <laughs> I, you know, it's uh, okay. What's your favorite? What what is your favorite? So if thing I'm to on a with? desert island, what kind of What what kind of shop would I have on a, on a desert island? Okay, so if I had like one wood to work with, um, you know, I, I think off the top of my head, rather than trying to grasp at something unexpected, I would probably say white oak, okay. just because, you know, it's a great color, it's a great workability, it has so many personalities, whether it's on which is super straight and quiet, you can get like a really golden color, to a really wide quarter sound figure, and, it's, um, and it fits my, my style, I don't consider my style to be primitive as in crude, but I do. Consider it to be maybe more elemental. Sure. So, uh, I and mean, I think white oak gives us a certain mass to it. Um, it takes a chamfer really, really well. Um, you can it it takes shapes pretty well, but obviously if you have really ornate carving, it's going to yeah. yeah. I, I think I think white oak. Um, Cause I'm so used to it and I understand if I start to work in cherry or walnut for too long and then I come back to white oak, it's like, why <laughs> you don't have a choice in that. That would be good. Um, so my, you know, other woods that might be up there could be ash. Okay. I love ash. I've been working with that a lot. Um, I really like butternut. Just again, I like those classic medium tone colors. Mm-hmm. Um, Cherry would be good. The cherry is so about cherry yeah. that right. I think it would really drive. I think every wood is going to pull you in a certain direction, design lines. So, like, I couldn't just make everything i knew in and make in cherry. I would just be going, I'm just off in cherry, and all my stuff is going to look like that. So, I would say white oak and ash are uh, probably the closest to what I'm doing right now to what I'm not going to too far in a different direction. I don't think I'm going to get reason. What was your answer, Logan?
1: Walnut, uh, without a doubt. I mean, having walnut. Yeah, I mean, and I'm. I completely understand that I'm spoiled having a sawmill living on five acres of old growth walnut trees. I mean, I'm spoiled. So I just, I love it. That's what everything in my house is made out of. Love it.
2: Yeah, that's a pretty terrible answer. Well, I know, I know it is. I know property that I saw myself. Yeah, it's, I know. Oh. It's I feel um. dirty after yeah. saying it. I know. <laughs> that's I, um. I. can definitely see that. Like we did come across a local Sawyer who'd sewn up some walnut, and it was all air dried. And you know mm-hmm. you're so used to re-sawing kiln-dried stock and having it go like this and like this, and I was re-sawing some air-dried right. walnut into like three sixteenths veneers, and it just like flopped off dead flat. Yep. And, yeah, it's like you know like, the one time that you accidentally find yourself flying first class, it's just going to ruin you for every other flight after that where you're flying. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I can see that. No, so I, basically, I, so are I, you? I, do you have
1: a say up or are you... I I don't um, I don't have a kiln I have a, uh, a a buddy of mine that lives probably 15 minutes away from me that has a kiln so uh, I send a lot okay. of my stock down to him if if I need to dry it faster I always prefer air dried if I can um, especially with especially yeah. with walnut I mean putting walnut in a kiln is that's terrible it's like baking cookies instead of just eating the cookie dough like <laughs> um <laughs> I was telling Phil, uh, I I do understand the the oak thing though. I had been sawing a lot of oak last summer and quarter sawing a lot of it, and I just loved it. I don't know why. Um, and it will be, it is actually ready to uh, to use now. So that might I might oh, cool. sh- I might pivot a little bit.
2: Yeah. So. Yeah, oak and walnut can along pretty well together. Yeah. Yeah. I'll do like a lot of case work, but it might have like uh, walnut interiors, walnut yep. doors. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I like so, like, where do you live? And do you have like motion sensors around your lumber stuff in your yard? Is it something that could just.
1: <laughs> you can come out and picture my lumber anytime you want, Mike.
2: <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Okay. All right. All right. Let's see.
0: Well, one other question that I had for you, Mike, was you know, a lot of times there's a. Woodworking has a reputation of being kind of an old man's sport, but you've been practicing for a while and Logan and I are still in the thick of it. But talk about being and incorporating being a woodworker while being a parent, because I know that for me, I have to be in my shop routinely if I'm going to be the best parent that I can be.
2: Uh, um, you know, it's a life balance is a super important thing I uh, you know, some of my you know, a lot of my students are, you know, pre retirement, post retirement, but now we're getting like the thirty somethings usually. It's a woodworker who maybe has a house and a shop space to be able to have a shop and they probably have one or two little kids, which means they can't be on the golf course for five hours, but you can be in the wood shop fifty feet away, and that's still okay. So um, and everybody is, is kind of bemoaning the fact that they don't have, you know, the, the time they want to have uh, in a shop. And i found that um, working with woodworkers of all ages, anything you can do to get a start in woodworking, even if it's just banging plywood together or it's getting in the shop when you can to make an own project, all of that is a really good head start and it's going to inform your woodworking abilities. When you do you get the time to be in the shop more, which, which you will. But I think to wait until, say, oh, I just retired. I want to take up woodworking because I had a class in high school and I really liked it. It's like, that's a tough go. That's that's really tough. And I would right. just say, you know, anything you can, you know, get in there. And, you know, it's I it's just. You know, it, it's a balance. It's it's just trying to keep as many of those plates spinning on the poles as you can. every now and then one wobbles, you get it with that. And <laughs> when they're all going, you can run out to the shop and you know get something done. Um, <clears throat> yeah, it's uh obviously there's <laughs> a little bit of reservation in guilt. Or should I really be out in the shop? But you know, I think woodworking um, it's it's a craft. It's a really really important thing, and I think. You know, spending a couple hours in your shop making something, as opposed to uh, some time on the golf course. Which I like to golf; it's, it's not a bad thing. But you know, there there's um, I think something more significant with spending your time in the shop. And it's just get in get in there what you can. Build as often as you can without you know compromising the the happiness of your household. And it's all going to add up, and it's all going to be a really good investment. You no know, later line for when you do get out.
0: And yeah, that's that's all I do. Yeah, cool. Well, I appreciate you having you on, Mike. Uh, we're a little over an hour here. Uh, Mike's books are the why and how of woodworking and the foundations of woodworking. If you're watching on our YouTube channel, uh, or you can check out our show notes page. We'll have links to being able to pick up those books and. Also, some other links for connecting with Mike and following him on the Instagrams and the internet and with his work at Fine Woodworking Magazine. Uh, wanted to say thanks again to Shaper Tools for sponsoring today's episode. They make that handheld CNC router. I'm sure you've seen it. It adds digital precision to your woodworking do all kinds of stuff with it joinery cabinetry hardware installation it adds speed and precision to your woodworking and they have an offer now where you can have it in your shop for 30 days you can check it out at shapertools.com to learn more well thanks again mike for joining us and um,
1: happy woodworking